I would invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Matthew. We'll be looking at the second half this morning of chapter 18. Adam spoke last week on the first half of Matthew chapter 18. Let's pray together before we begin. Heavenly Father, come right now and teach us. Teach us through your word as the Holy Spirit drives it into our hearts and shape us to be humble children in your kingdom, in Jesus' name, amen. Probably one of the most uh, well-known volcanoes in the world is Mount Vesuvius. Mount Vesuvius is over in Italy, and its most famous eruption was back in 79 A.D., when sort of a surprise eruption came and destroyed the entire city of Pompeii, burying it in ash and lava and killing probably a thousand people or so. Um, It doesn't sound like a lot, but you have to realize back in those days, the population wasn't anything like it is today. Um, The eruption in 79 AD, the thermal energy in that eruption was 100,000 times the thermal energy of an atomic bomb. That's a lot of energy. Through molten lava and rock and steam and ash and pumice, 20 miles up into the air. And the most significant damage of the volcano was what they call a pyroclastic flow. All of this steam generated from the seawater going into the cavities underneath the volcano threw all this material up in the air. And as it went up in the air, it cooled so fast that it rushed back to the ground and rushed across the earth in a hot wave that scorched everything in its path. Heat, not just lava. Vesuvius has erupted 42 times since then. The last one was in 1944. That was at the end of World War II, and there were only 26 people who died. 12,000 people were put out of their homes, and 80 aircraft were destroyed because of the heat and the plexiglass windows and the wings and so forth. Vesuvius is considered the most dangerous volcano in the world today because nearly 3 million people live right around it. If it was to erupt today like it did back back then, 600,000 people would have to be evacuated. That's quite a quite a thing to consider so that the local government authorities made a state park out of Mount Vesuvius. They've taken thousands of acres and made it a state park, and they don't let people build in there because they're trying to protect people from this catastrophe. Thousands of acres of a safety net. So if the volcano erupted today, it would mean a lot of evacuation for a lot of people. So scientists constantly monitor what's happening in that volcano. And they have solar-powered equipment on top of the mountain and other places where they monitor what's happening above the ground, what's happening below ground, so they can predict when an eruption might occur so they can save people. I'm not a scientist, but I think the general thing that's happening in volcanoes is lots of really hot, bubbly, bad stuff is down in the ground, And then a certain number of events occur that happen, and then this stuff bubbles out of the ground and is very destructive. Unresolved conflict and anger and sin in your life and in the life of the church is like that volcano. It festers and broods and boils beneath the surface until there is a blow-up And then often many people are hurt. If you're a member of this church, or maybe you're a member of another church somewhere and you're visiting here today, conflict and anger and sin in your life and in the church are inseparable. We're a family. We do life together. We do meals together. We pray together. We worship together. We encourage each other together. We do medical challenges together. We do life together. If we do not understand the biblical model of dealing with misunderstandings and offenses and sin in our lives and in the church, anger and resentment build up and the loving harmony that God doesn't just desire, he commands for us to have is lost in the church. Feelings are hurt, lives are damaged, relationships are soured. And worst of all, the testimony of the people of God And their commitment to God begins to be questioned by the outside world. 
Listen. The church of Jesus Christ takes a lot of heat from the world, doesn't it? We're criticized for our stances on homosexuality and issues of morality and premarital sex and abortion and all these issues. And the world just tells the church how unloving and how unkind we are because we hold these positions that we don't hold because we like it. We hold them because the Bible says so and God declared it. The Bible says that you're to rejoice when you're reviled and persecuted, when people say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But sometimes the church is criticized for being unloving and unkind, and it's true. It breaks my heart when the church is criticized for not loving each other when those who in the church should model it the most to each other. Dwight Carlson actually wrote a book called Why Do Christians Shoot Their Wounded? It should not be so. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this... Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In John 15, 12, Jesus said that you're to love each other the way that I have loved you. In John 4, 11, the Bible says if God loves us, we should love each other. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, Make my joy complete, be of the same mind, maintain the same love, be united in spirit, intent on one purpose. The Bible is filled with these kinds of references. It is God's will. For us to live out our Christian lives together in harmony, committed to loving each other, sharing with each other, Hebrews chapter 13, meeting each other's needs, Luke chapter 3, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, Romans chapter 12, bearing one another's burdens, Galatians chapter 6, and lovingly confronting one another over offenses and sin, and then forgiving each other the way that God has forgiven us, Matthew chapter 18, our text for today. We will discuss today what it looks like to have humility that leads to harmony from Matthew 18. Let's read the text together if you want to follow along, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 till the end of the chapter. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two more with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. And if he doesn't pay attention to them, well, then tell the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. I assure you that whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Again, I assure you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. And then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and and I forgive him? I mean, like seven times? And Jesus says, I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. And since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything that he had be sold to pay the debt. At this time, the slave fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me and I will pay you everything. And the master of the slave had compassion and released him and forgave the loan. But that slave then went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he grabbed him, started choking him and said, Pay whatever you owe. And this fellow slave fell down and began begging him, saying, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he was not willing. On the contrary, he threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed, and they went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I have had mercy on you? And his master got angry. 
and handed him over to the jailers or tormentors in some versions until he could pay everything that was owed. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. The first 15 verses of Matthew that we did not read are about the childlikeness of the believer. Adam preached on that last week. We are to love one another as humble children in the kingdom of God. We're to receive kingdom children. We're to protect kingdom children. We are to pursue kingdom children. And all this comes from the disciples' question about who is the greatest in the kingdom. Do you realize that? This talking about childlike humility and forgiving your brother and going to someone who offends you, this is all because the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, who's the the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus is like, oh, man. Oh, you guys, it's not like that. you got to come into the kingdom like little children. And then how does he say that little children, children come into the kingdom? He says they come in because they humble themselves. Jesus is not impressed by the question at all. He's not concerned about who's the greatest in the kingdom. He's concerned about who comes in like a little child. So Jesus takes a little child. And he says the one who humbles himself is the greatest. Not the one with the best ideas or the most theological knowledge or the one who gives the most money. The greatest in the kingdom of God. Listen has nothing to do with how smart you are, how much money you give, how much leadership you have, and has everything to do with the humility in which you approach everything you do. No matter how many churches you've been in, how many people you have led, how many decisions you have made, how many dollars you have given, if you are not characterized by a spirit of humility and how you relate to others in the church, you are not applying what Jesus taught. So after 14 verses of talking about kingdom children, humility, which we all are, we're all kingdom children, we're all to operate in a spirit of humility, Jesus details then how to handle conflict because conflict is inevitable. Isn't it? We know that. It's inevitable with our children, with our spouses, in our workplace, in our churches. Conflict is inevitable. Conflict is not the problem. Conflict's never the problem. The problem is how we approach it and how we deal with it and how we handle it. Conflict is inevitable. Jesus even says in Matthew chapter 18, needs be that these offenses come. Conflict is necessary for you in your life for your growth, both personally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. It's not about whether or not there's conflict. That's inevitable. It's how you handle it that matters. And so Jesus prefaces this passage on how to handle conflict with Verses on being humble like a child. Some have referred to Matthew chapter 18 as a biblical passage on church discipline. I don't want us to think about it that way. I'm okay if you want to, but I'd like for us to think of Matthew chapter 18 as a passage on church harmony. Because this passage details what it looks like for us to be able to confidently grasp after harmony in the church even when there is conflict. So first I want to look at the plea. And the plea is in verses 15 through 20, where Jesus tells us how to go about receiving, uh, uh, obtaining harmony. And then I will look at the key to harmony, which is in the last part, which is about forgiveness. So the plea, number one, you're to go to your brother alone. Go alone. And the Bible says, if your brother sins against you, the word here is hamartias. Hamartias is the biblical word for sin. It's all over the New Testament. It means two general things. It means, one, to fall short of the mark. There's a goal. There's a place we want to hit. There's a mark in the middle. We're shooting for that goal, and we miss it. We entirely miss the mark that we're shooting for. The other meaning of the word hamartias is to step over the line. There's a line. There's a line right here that's drawn on the sand. There's a marker. There's a pattern of holiness. There's a thing that we shouldn't do that's a breaking the law, sinning, a commandment. And there's a line that we should not cross. And sin is both falling short of the mark of a Christian and stepping over the lines that God has drawn. And sometimes in your relationships with others, if your brother sins, there's a falling short of the goal and there's a stepping over a line. It can be a mean spirit, unkind words. It could be theft or a lie, or gossip, or rumors, or immoral behavior. It could be any of those things. Sometimes you can sin directly against another person in church, and sometimes you can sin indirectly. Direct sin is when someone is mean, or unkind, or lies, or steals, or gossips about me, or 
to me when that happens. That's a direct sin. It's in my face. It's right in front of me. Sometimes it's indirect. Sometimes there can be situations in the church where someone is sinning as a part of the body of Christ that I'm a part of. And I'm grieved over that. And I'm concerned about the testimony of the church. Maybe there's a couple in the church that's living in a state of immorality. And it brings into question the entire church. And I heard a story one time where someone invited an attorney to come to a particular church. And this attorney goes, I would never go to that church. The most crooked attorney in this town goes to that church. And that reputation of that attorney, which was known to be crooked, was a statement about the entire church. Whether it was true or false, it was still out there. So if your brother sins and offends a mean spirit, you could, you could sin completely accidentally. You could offend a brother that way. You could be unkind and miss the mark of being loving and kind and sweet to each other. You could miss that mark completely. You could walk in the back door and you've had a really rough morning and lots of things have gone wrong and there's a couple standing there at the back door and they're just trying to be happy and hold that door and greet everybody in there. And you could be grumpy towards them and offend them. They're like, man, alive, what did I do to them? The answer is nothing. They just had a really bad morning and now you have a choice to make. Are you offended? Did they sin against you? Maybe, maybe not. If your brother sins against you, So before we talk about what to do in that case, I want to talk about another biblical principle that applies. Proverbs 19.11 says it's a man's glory to overlook an offense. And so then we wrestle with, well, what's an overlookable offense? Can I overlook it or not? Sometimes, like in the situation where someone comes in through the church doors and maybe they're grumpy towards a greeter and it hurts their feelings, maybe that's an overlookable offense because they've had a really rough morning and if you knew what just happened, you'd be surprised they even made it to church this morning. And you just know that the pattern of their life and the way they normally relate and the character that you know of this person is not consistent with the way they just treated you. So you're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. You're going to trust their heart for the Lord, their heart for the church, and you're just going to let that one go and you're going to smile and maybe if you get a chance sometime, you might ask them, hey, how's everything going? I'm sensing it's a little rough around here for you. So sometimes you can overlook an offense if it's not consistent with the life of the person and you can trust their prior action, their prior hearts that you've come to know. Sometimes you might misjudge a situation. You could be driving by the house. Maybe there's a young couple in your church that's dating and you know where the young lady lives and you drive by to work one morning at 6 o'clock with your cup of hot coffee to give you the energy to get to work and you notice that his car is parked outside her house at 6 o'clock in the morning and the red flags go up and you're like, oh my my word, is is he staying over? Are there being immoral? Oh, well, I know them and I trust him and I'm... Maybe you don't know the whole situation. Maybe her car broke down and maybe she borrowed his. So sometimes you can overlook an offense because you really don't know the situation and there are there are explanations that it's not a sin at all and you can overlook that offense. Maybe sometimes you have to ask God for wisdom. I've had that in my own life often where I just don't, I just really don't know. Is this something I should address or shouldn't I? Not so long ago, I called a friend of mine. I said, man, I'm really struggling with this situation. I, I really don't know what to do about it. Can you give me some feedback? Because I don't know. And I'm asking God for wisdom. And I'm asking my brothers and sisters in Christ for wisdom. What you should not do is call someone and say, hey, you know, Billy Bob offended me. And I think I should go, you know, tell him what's up. And what do you think I should do? What do you do? Well, no, not like that at all. Sometimes you can ask God for wisdom, and then some other times, let's be honest, you just can't get past it. Something happened. There have been some unkind words, and you've tried to trust prior action. You've tried to ask God for wisdom. You've acknowledged that maybe you're misjudging the situation, but you just can't get past it. And then you need to go talk to your brother or sister in the Lord. You have to. Because you've been offended. You think there's a sin. It's harming the relationship. They're in the body of Christ. I want to remind you also, not only sometimes can you overlook an offense, but they're necessary. Matthew chapter 18, verse 7 says it. Needs be that these offenses come. Every single person in this room right now can think of times in your life where you have been sinned against or offended or hurt, and it comes to your mind, because you know what it feels like, we all do. So needs be that these offenses come. So if your brother sins, and then we're to go in private, rebuke him in private. Not in front of a bunch of other people, don't embarrass the person. 
rebuke him in private. Don't tell your buddies or your girlfriends and don't ask for support about what you think you should say. Don't, don't talk to a bunch of other people and spread rumors. Go to your brother, go to your sister and say, hey, this is what happened. Maybe the offense was against me or maybe I see you sinning in this particular arena and I'm concerned about your spiritual walk. Maybe there's something happening in a person's life where you just need to go talk to them about that. Go alone. You know what the Bible says here? It says, um, go and rebuke him in private. The word for rebuke really means to shed a light on something. It's not to be mean. It's not to corner somebody. It's to shed a light. Hey, I think there might be something you're missing. Let me turn on the light here. Let me shed light on a situation. Let me bring it to your attention. Let me show you the fault. Go in private and shed light. Go to him alone. Don't tell others it makes a triangle. I had someone come to my office some years ago and uh, sat down in my office and began to complain about a Sunday school teacher in the church. And they were saying some pretty harsh things about, you know, this person, that, and this person, that. And we're maybe 30 seconds in. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Have you talked to them? Well, no. Well, because why didn't you talk to them? Well, I thought I better talk to you first. No, no, you should not. You should talk to them. The person proceeded with the accusations. And I said, if you go any further, I'm going to take my phone. I'm going to call them. I'm going to have them come down. Because we're not doing this. You're not going to sit and air your grievances with me when the Bible says if you have a fault with a brother, you're to go to him alone. And that's what happened. That person sought out that person. and I was not a party to the resolution, but that's how it's supposed to be. Go to him alone. Do not tell others. Go in person. Now, this not, the, the, the development of the personal computer was in the very early stages in Jesus' day. Okay? They, they really were just getting the silicone chips figured out. But there was no email and text messaging and cell phones and all of this social media stuff back in Jesus' day. And so I'm gonna, I don't have a verse for this, but let me tell you what I think with all my heart is so very true. If you have an offense with a brother, if you're going to go to him in private, if you're going to bring it to light, don't send him an email. Don't send him a text. Go to them face to face. What's the Bible say? Go to him in private. Why? This is really important. Why? Because the love that you have for your brother or sister in Christ, the humility in your demeanor, the sadness that you have for the broken relationship is the obvious frame for the entire encounter. And you can't put that in an email. I had someone tell me one time I I had to write it in an email because I was afraid with the emotion of the situation I would misspeak. Then write every word down, Go to your brother, go to your sister, and read it to them with humility and sadness over the broken relationship. Don't send them an email. Don't send them a text. It's impossible to see the emotion that you have as a fellow brother or sister in the Lord and the grief that you have in your heart over the fact that there is a damaging conflict in your relationship. Go to them in person, in their face, so they can see your heart. Go humbly. No gotcha, no vengeance, no self-righteousness. Go humbly. The first 15 verses of the passage talk about being humble like little children. Go humbly. You know why you go humbly? Because you stumble too. You stumble too. You got to remember to be humble so that, because you remember that you stumble. Sometimes there is a cause for immediate confrontation. We see this in the Word of God in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. There was a conflict in the church, and Peter was directly confronted on the spot in front of a group of people by Paul. It was a, it was, it was a very concerning situation, and Paul says, I confronted him to his face in front of the others. I think this kind of interaction in our churches today would be extremely rare maybe possible, but extremely rare for a conflict to be so important to address it right in the moment, right in front of us. I want to acknowledge there is that possibility. Time for direct and immediate confrontation. The goal of the passage in chapter 15 and 16 is to win your brother. Verses 15 and 16. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. The Greek word for won is kurdos. Okay? It's to win, to win over your brother, to win his favor. Kurdos is a very rich word. It means to escape evil. It means to gain something in the kingdom. It means to be spared from harm. 
It's the same word used when the Bible says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's gain. When you, when you reconcile with your brother, that's the kurdos, that's the gain that you receive. In the parable of the talents, the, the managers were given ten talents and five talents and one talent. And the Bible says they went out and the one with five gained five more. That's kurdos. In 1 Corinthians 9.22, that word is actually used of bringing someone to Christ, that kind of gain. The goal of your confrontation is not to corner your brother. It's not to pinpoint him and condemn him and make him feel bad. It is to win him back. Beloved, I believe the vast majority of offenses in our relationships, in our homes, with our spouses, and in our churches could be solved by this step right here. I believe it with all my heart that if we would do this, if we would practice this and going to another person in humility to restore that relationship with the goal of not cornering someone but restoring that loving relationship, that 95% of conflict would go away, not only in our churches, but in our marriages. Sometimes it's really hard to say you hurt me. This is hard for me sometimes in a relationship because I'm afraid if I say that what happened hurt me, I'm offended, I feel sinned against it, that there might be a defensiveness of that and someone might defend their case and then I might feel even worse. And so sometimes I'm reluctant, but I know from experience that when I'm able to say, look, this really hurt me, this has harmed me, this has harmed our relationship, even if there's defensiveness, you can say, I don't want to argue about that, I want to, I want to talk about the fact that I feel hurt. I feel damaged. I feel sinned against. Keep the focus on the relationship. The vast majority of our offenses, I believe, could be solved. Alistair Begg preached a sermon on this some years ago, and he said that this teaching in Matthew 18 is likely the most neglected area of teaching in the church today. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you have gone to someone and said to them, I've really been hurt by what happened, and I want to talk about that and I'd like to restore our relationship. Or when's the last time someone has come to you? Do you remember? Most people have a hard time. Since I have been at Redemption City Church, I have saw, have had someone come to me and say, man, I, I, I said something really stupid, you know, and I want to ask for your forgiveness. And I was so overjoyed because that relationship is thicker than ever because of what happened. And it wasn't harm by that. It was hell. Have you been confronted by someone else? Have you confronted another? Let me ask you this. Have you been hurt or offended? Yeah, y'all have. I know it. Y'all have. You've been hurt or offended. It happens. So first, if your brother sins, go in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, number two, go with a couple of others. So now we have a situation that escalates. And of course, if you go with a couple of others, the most likely logic for this is Someone has denied that there was an offense or a sin. They're like, I don't know what you're talking about. This is crazy. You're nuts. I mean, I, well, I didn't do that. You know. So now we have a problem where, okay, well, uh, I think this is true. We take a couple of, but we take a couple others for several reasons. Catch this now. You take a couple others because you're humble enough to acknowledge that you might be wrong yourself, right? Maybe there was a perfectly logical, logical explanation for something that looked like it was a sin. So you take someone else with you to establish every word. By the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established, whichever way it goes. Go with a couple of others. Choose wise, humble, honest, trustworthy, respected people. And above all, go back to point number one and be humble and frame your entire encounter with a brokenness over the broken relationship and humility towards the other person and see if you can sort it out. The goal, again, is to win is to win and not to trap. Sometimes there's a difference of opinion, and it can be sorted out with a couple of outside parties. I remember when I was in the ministry, there was a contractor and there was a family in the church, and they had a, 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 a job done on their house, and there was a lot of conflict. And they had both come to me on separate occasions and had complained about the other one, which I said, well, have you talked? Yeah, I talked to them. They won't listen to me. And I said, tell you what, and I contacted both parties said, if you'll let me sit down with you, I'll be happy to help you sort it out. And they were both willing. And we sat down together, the four of us, and went through the complaints over the contracting issue. And we went through the 
the complaints of the contractor and went through line by line by line and said, well, it looks to me like it would be reasonable to this. And both of those parties humbly together with me, who was not trying to be a know-it-all or cocky, just trying to help them, went through that. At the end of that encounter, the homeowner wrote this man a check for X amount of dollars based on what we all talked about. And the relationship was restored and the contractor felt hurt and the family felt hurt. And I overjoyed in my heart that this was a volatile volcano brewing under the surface that could explode at any time in the church. And I was overjoyed and thankful to God because going with a couple of others and getting together solved the situation. Established the facts. I think most cases are pretty clear. I really do. I think sometimes it is complicated, but I think most cases are pretty clear. And I also want to allow that I myself, in humility, could misunderstand the situation and could be wrong. So I want to acknowledge that myself. Sometimes you go to someone and the response is something like this. You tell them that there's been an offense or a sin and you're coming to restore the relationship and you're asking for them to repent or apologize or what have you. And maybe they have this, are you kidding me? I got this little speck in my eye and you're coming to me. You got a beam sticking out of yours. You're you're a law guy. I'm speck guy. You're a law guy and you're grieved and you're like, I can't believe it. And that's when it's necessary. I got to get somebody else because maybe I am a law guy. I don't know. I don't want to be. And so a couple people enter in, in this, going with a couple of others to sort out the facts to help determine this. Almost everything in this is the same as in point one, where it's with humility and kindness and love. And if you go back with a couple of others and you try to establish the facts, the Bible says in verse 17, if he pays no attention to them, tell the church. I've rarely seen this happen. I believe in my heart that it should happen just a little bit more than it does, because oftentimes relationship conflicts that needed to be resolved were not. Feelings are hurt, relationships are damaged, and people are wondering what's going on. And there's this sense of not being resolved that harms the whole church. And people begin to distrust leaders and wonder what's really happening, and they don't know. And sometimes it's helpful to tell it to the church and say, look, so-and-so went to so-and-so, and it didn't go very good. And then a couple of uh, pastors or elders or laymen or small group leaders or what have you went along with them, and they worked it out, and this person is is defiant. We've looked at all the facts and we really believe that the person is in a sinful attitude or a sinful way and that they just won't repent. And we've pleaded with them and they tell us pretty much to go jump in a lake. And we have to tell the church because we have to have the church understand what's happening. So far, it's all been private, but now it's public. Maybe in a smaller setting, maybe in your Bible study group is a place to share this. Maybe before the Lord's Supper, some churches before the Lord's Supper say, hey, there's been a a relationship breakdown with a party in the church. And we just want you to know that, that it's important as if we fellowship around the Lord's table and, 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 and eat and drink as a, as a memento of our unity. We want you to know that we're at odds with this brother or sister and they've been, they've been warned by several others and we want you to plead for their repentance and their restoration to the body. On the basis of established fact, now the church body pleads with the individual for repentance. With the same humility, with the same we love you, with the same please don't do this, with the same face-to-face show of love for your brother, the humility in your demeanor, and the sadness in the broken relationship as the obvious frame for the entire encounter. As a church, you tracking with me? We're not writing them off. We're not shunning them. We're not avoiding fellowship. We are pleading with them to be restored in fellowship to the local body of Christ. The same goal exists when we tell the church. The goal is to win. Win back the relationship. Most cases, in my experience, do not get results at this stage. Just being honest with you. Most cases, by the time we get this far, do not get results at this stage for several reasons. One is the person might not be a Christian. And as as you know, Christians are primarily identifiable by the fact that they own and acknowledge their sin and they've received Christ's forgiveness as a part of who they are. I'm a sinner, beloved. I sin. I still sin. I might sin against you. God forbid. But the safest place for me to sin ought to be right here. 
Because I love you. And you love me. I don't want to stumble here, not out there. Most cases do not get resolved at this stage because oftentimes the person is not a Christian and has no interest whatsoever in holiness. Sometimes the person has been snagged by a snare of Satan. That's the whole first part of Matthew 18. The scandalizo, a snare of Satan. Don't be a snare. He's saying Satan's got traps everywhere. Some of the relationship struggles that you have right now in your life are a snare of Satan, a trap of Satan to trip you up, to cause hard feelings and break relationships and harm the church. Sometimes the reality is a person may have sin in their heart that is growing, and when you have sin in your heart, your heart grows hard. And as your heart grows hard, you're less and less able to respond to the loving call of other believers back to personal holiness. Sin plus time equals hardness. Usually what happens, in my experience at this stage, is that person then begins to broadly criticize the church. They begin to broadly criticize the church, especially those who approach. And the person will usually rally support of others to bolster their case with mass emails and gossip and rumors and ghosting. What's ghosting? It's a word that I made up, I think, possibly. But ghosting is when there's just something wrong and you just can't quite put your finger on it, but there's just something going on. Ghosting. When this happens, be very reluctant to buy in. Question the motive of persons who are not dealing directly with the person which with they have the, the grievance. Send them back to the source. Titus 3.9 says, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once. Warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. It's not saying that these controversies about genealogies are, are okay and good. We should have them. It's not talking about that. It's saying the contrast to useless, divisive arguments, the contrast is realized when there's divisive behavior and put a stop to it because it will harm the body at a greater level. And then this is preparation for the next phase. I had a young lady one time that was in a church where I was a pastor, and she was going to travel for a week's vacation with her boyfriend to Cancun. She was telling me about it. Her member of the church with her boyfriend, and I was overwhelmed with grief, and I began to say, wow, I'm just really struggling. And I, I mean, I can get a little excited, I realize, but... As lovingly as I could, I tried to share how this was just unthinkable. And then she told her family, and the family told their friends, and their friends told their friends, and all of a sudden I'm the evil, nasty person who... And I was so grieved by that, and that's what happens in this stage. And then lastly... If he pays no attention to the church, the church has lovingly and humbly been pleading, then let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. What does that mean? Does it mean we shun them and have nothing to do with them? No. How are we supposed to treat unbelievers and tax collectors? How are we supposed to? You know, right? Tax collectors are just Gummy people that you don't want anything to do with. That's what they were. Saying tax collector is just saying scummy person. They're just, ugh. What do we do? We try to love them and reach out to them and share truth to them and try to bring them back. And so when we treat them like an unbeliever, how do we treat unbelievers? We don't shun them. We don't avoid them at all costs. We treat them in a way that says we want you to have a relationship with God. We want you to have forgiveness of sin. We want you to experience repentance. We want you to have a relationship with us in the church. You treat them in a way that acknowledges they're probably either very backslidden or not a Christian in the first place, and I want to win them back to Christ. Treat them like a tax collector or an unbeliever. The lost do not fear God. The lost do not own their sin. The lost do not repent until they are converted. This is not gossip. This is not having the church plead for a soul of another. This is this is not gossiping about them. This break in the fellowship is required by the church that it might awaken the person to repentance or bring them to repentance if they are not a Christian. The church then removes the affirmation of faith, which is a critical part of the fellowship of Christ, right? We're members together. We worship together. We're here together. And we affirm each other in our faith and we trust each other in our faith. We help each other in our faith. The church removes 
that affirmation by treating them as an unbeliever or a tax collector. And then sometimes it's necessary to, listen to me, sometimes it's necessary to break fellowship with a person because they are bringing dishonor to the church, and the Bible talks about that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, I wrote to in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he says, now, not the people in the world, because that's just the way they are, okay? Do not disassociate with sexually immoral people who do not claim the name of Christ. They're not even pretending to follow Christ. His laws mean nothing to them. Don't disassociate with them, but... I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister in the Lord, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slander or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church, lost people, unbelievers? But are we not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is a very rare case. This is a person who's gone through every step of Matthew 18 that we've talked about. This desire for humility that leads to harmony. Gone through every step. And they maintain their relationship with Christ. They're a Christian. They're loving God. They're serving God. And they refuse. This was immorality. This is a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. Okay? That's how serious this was in 1 Corinthians 5. This is someone who refuses to acknowledge open apparent sin and continues to claim the name of Christ. You cannot associate with that person because they will bring harm and discredit to the entire church. It's a very rare case. Most people, in my experience, run away long before this happens. So, what's this bit about whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven? I assure you, if two or three agree in any matter, it will be done for you. That's used out of context all the time. Right? Have you ever heard that? You know, well, here we are together, you know, meeting the church of God, or two or three are gathered, you know, Christ in their midst. This entire section of scripture here about what's loosed in heaven is loosed on earth, what's bound in heaven, this is all about this relationship restoration, this conflict. This is saying, when you do this, when you do everything that we just talked about, when you do that, when you seek out your brother to restore the relationship, when you take a couple with you, when you tell the church, and you do it in a state of humility, demonstrating your sadness over the broken relationship, when you do that, what's bound in heaven is bound on earth. You are doing this with the authority of God. It's all saying, bound in heaven, bound on earth, loosed in heaven, loosed on earth. When you're doing that, you're doing it so that where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm in their midst. When you take a couple people with you to go to someone who you're fearing has been snared by sin and you're going with them and you're going to meet with this person, God is with you if your heart is humble and you're desiring to restore the relationship. That's what this is talking about. It's not talking about somebody with a little prayer meeting in the church and we're just glad God's among us because there's only three of us here. No. It's in this context And Jesus says that to validate the importance of this and the authority of this in your life, in my life, in the life of the church. That's the plea for church harmony. So what's the key? It's forgiveness. Forgiveness. The key is forgiveness. And so Peter, get this. Jesus has that teaching, and what does Peter say? Well, how do we uh, how do we make sure that people are being properly disciplined in the church? Now, it's, you know what Peter says? Um, well, Jesus, um, how many how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Like like seven? Because the Jewish law was three times, three strikes you're out. That's where we got it in baseball. I don't know if you knew that. But that's Jewish law, three times, three strikes you out. You commit the same offense three times. The fourth time, you are not forgiven. So Peter comes along, doubles it, and adds one, and says, "Well, seven? <laughs> I'm pretty godly. And Jesus is like, no. It's it's 70 times 7. It's so many that you couldn't possibly keep track. It's so many that you couldn't possibly keep Peter assumes, get this, Peter assumes in Jesus' discourse that this will work. Right? He assumes it. You're going to go to your brother. They're going to they're going to ask for they're going to repent and they're going to ask for forgiveness and it's going to work. He assumed it so much that his question is not what do we do if it doesn't work. His question is, well, how many times do I have to do that? And Jesus says forever. And then he tells a story. I love the story. This guy, this master, has a bunch of servants. He calls them in for accounting. I'll try to do this really fast. But he he, he says that someone owes him ten thousand talents. You know what that is? I've, I've done the math. I can tell you exactly what ten thousand talents is. It's a zillion. Do you know how I know that? Because 10,000 is the largest number in the Greek language. Okay, you with me? Largest number in the Greek language. 
and talent is the largest monetary denomination they had. And so Jesus picks the largest number they have with the largest monetary denomination and says, this guy came to the master and he owed him a zillion dollars. Okay? And that's you. And that's me. I come before the Lord when I repented of my sin and turned to Christ and I owed him a zillion dollars. My debts were so high. My sins were so grievous. When I came to the mass and I repented and turned to Christ, I begged for forgiveness and he gave it to me and he forgave me my zillion dollar debt. And I am pure and holy before the Lord Jesus Christ because he forgave me a debt that I could not pay. And then the master pled. He fell before him and the master forgave him the way that God forgave you and me. And then he went out and there was another servant in the kingdom and that servant owed him some money and he offended him and he sinned against him and he would give him no mercy and he put him in jail till he could pay every penny. That's when you don't forgive your brother or sister in the Lord. And then the other servants told the master, let me just say, that's the first thing you should always do when there's an offense in your life. Did you hear that? You know what they did? The servants told the master. When it happens in your life, in your heart, in your mind, tell the master, Lord, this just happened. I'm hurt. I think this was bad. I think it was a sin. Tell the master first. Don't tell your buddies. Don't send an email. Don't tell your friends and neighbors. Tell the master. The other servants told the master, and the master who was informed of the grievance was angry. He was angry with his servant which is like us who've been forgiven so much. He was angry with this servant because this servant was forgiven so much but was unable to forgive others. He was angry and he called them in and he called them to task and he says, why have you done this? You who have been forgiven so much should be able to forgive the lesser offense. This is really hard. I get it. I'm married. Right? It happens. We hurt each other. It's not consistent with our character, but it happens. And sometimes it's so hard to forgive because you've been hurt. You know what happens in this whole chapter that we're talking about? So often, you and I are so much more willing to nurse our grudge than fix the problem. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be me. Don't nurse a grudge. Fix the problem. So the master calls him in and he says, you wicked servant. And he turns him over to the jailers. The Greek word there is for the tormentors. The tormentors. You know what I think happens there? Jesus turns him over and brings a kind of torment into his life, especially if it's a Christian who's not forgiving. And they have all kinds of lack of trust and issues of a lack of peace and not harmony and anxiety and all these issues, all these emotional issues. Because the master turns the unforgiving servant over to the tormentor. You want peace in your life? Start forgiving the people that you have grudges against. It's in the Bible. Jesus regularly refers to your ability to forgive others as you understanding his ability to forgive you. Jesus says there's no limit. There's no limit to the forgiveness. You can't count enough. This does not deny the consequences. This does not condone sin when you forgive someone. It's not pretending it didn't happen. It's not denying that you were hurt. It's a decision to trust God and to literally treat others the way that you yourself have been treated. It's willing. It's being ready and willing to forgive. You're ready? I'm going to say it out loud. It's being ready and willing to forgive even before the offense occurs. I'm ready. Because I love you. Now I want to be in a relationship with you and others, and I want you to want the same. And I am ready. If you sin, and I pray that you don't, maybe I'm the scandalizo mine, maybe I'm the stumbling block, maybe someone else's, I want to give you the benefit. I want to be ready to forgive. Jesus refers this in the Lord's Prayer. Talks about moving towards a repentant person when you want to move away. It's not letting the hurts of your past dominate the relationship of the future. And lastly, the very last phrase of the passage, so my heavenly Father will also do this to you if each of you does not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. You can't fake this. And it might hurt, and it might be hard, and just saying the words might be painful, but you have got to forgive from your heart. And if you're not there, then ask God for help. Tell your brother or sister in Christ, you know, I'm... I want to forgive you. I'm really struggling. I was really hurt. I really want to forgive. It's 
hard. I'm gonna, I'll do everything I can to do what the Bible says. Help me. Help me be forgiving. The key to a vibrant Christian life is always when principle is turned into practice. The key to a vibrant Christian life is when principle is turned into practice. There's no excuse for a broken relationship in the church of the living God. Sometimes we think of people that have stumbled and fell as one who has erred, the erring one. Listen to these words, please. Think gently of the erring one. You know not of the power with which the dark temptation came in some unguarded hour. You might not know how earnestly they struggled or how well until the hour of weakness came and sadly your brother fell. Think gently of the erring one and do not forget, however darkly stained by sin, he is your brother yet. Heir of the same self-heritage, child of the self-same God, he has but stumbled in a path that you yourself often try. Speak gently to the erring one, for it is not enough that his innocence and peace have gone to receive your censure rough. Speak gently to the erring one, that you may lead them back with holy words and tones of love from misery's thorny track. Do not forget you often sin, and sinful yet may be. Deal gently with the erring one as God has dealt with thee. I need eight kids to come and help me. I want to do a word picture for you. I want to give you the first half of Matthew chapter 18, which is all about humility. And I want to take the last half about that and put it together. And I want you to have a word. I need eight kids. I need eight kids to come and help me. Come on up. I need, I need eight. I think we, yep, come on up. Girls, come right up here. We're going to do a word picture. One, two, three, four, five, six. We got eight. That's it. No more. Okay, everybody line up. Everybody line up. Everybody line up. Okay, right in the line. Yep, right here. Okay, you, yep. Everybody get in the line. Okay, everybody get in the line. Now I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you, um, hang on, i got to turn it upside down. I want you to hold this at the top of that right there. Hold it right there. On the sides, right there. Okay, see how she's holding it, everybody? Okay, now you got to move over a little bit, make room for these. Okay, move over. Okay, move over. Yep, and then you. Okay, and then one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, we got a few extras. That's fine. Um, yep. Okay, oh, oh, nope. Hold it right there. Hold it right there. Hold it right there. Okay, hold it right there. Okay, got to move over a little bit. Got to make room. And you, and you. Now, I want all you to take that right now. And your whole life, I want you to go straight up over your heads and hold it really high. Way up. Way up. Now, don't move. Just hold it right there. Beloved, the children, the way we come into the kingdom, the children, like little children, telling us the humility with which we should embrace our brothers and sisters in Christ. You guys, I want you to hold that for, yeah, go ahead. I want you to hold that for 20 seconds and I'm going to pray, okay? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, bring us the humility that we need like little children to fellowship richly in the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.